and welcome, welcome to the other side of midnight. Good evening, good morning. This is Kinthea, and I am standing in with our sound engineer, Keith Morgan. We are standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, who was on standby to do the show, and his monitor died. So we're all in different states. Keith is back east, and I'm on the west coast. And so we are going to bridge this show and uh, have a great time together. I want to share with you Richard's thoughtful intro to the show. By the way, the show is called 75 Years Seeing Flying Saucers. What, if anything, have we learned? And our guests tonight are Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa. And I know it's going to be a really amazing show. I'm going to learn a lot and discover a lot. So Richard uh, set the tone for this show, and here is what he had to say. The UFO phenomenon, sorry, it's the 21st century governmental speak, unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAP, has been going on for over three quarters of a century. But the truth is, we, the average U.S. citizens, still haven't a clue as to what they really are. Oh, I know all the UFO explanations that have been around for the past, say, 75 years. Top secret U.S. government anti-gravity prototypes being repeatedly tested right over major U.S. cities. New York, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C. Right. Or a stunning earthly aerospace breakthrough made by some potentially hostile foreign power, but oddly never used. Not in Korea, Vietnam, the war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. Makes sense, yeah? Hmm. Or the Trump card, their genuine ET spacecraft that literally come and abduct some Americans in the middle of the night and sometimes in the broad daylight. The truth is, after 75 years of literally millions of Americans seeing something up there, we still don't know scientifically what UFOs really are. But my guests tonight, Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa, have detected fascinating scientific patterns in the more than 160,000 UFO sightings that have been publicly logged over those last, say, 75 years, which are ultimately unique potential clues to what and from whom UFOs may ultimately come. So I, uh, I'm really excited to bring on our two guests. And again, Keith Morgan is co-hosting with me, so he'll be jumping in, in <laughs> whenever he wants. Our first uh, guest, well, they're going to be on together, is Cheryl Costa. Cheryl grew up in Corning, New York, leaving to join the Air Force and then the Navy. She had a five-year career as an industrial filmmaker for IBM and eventually a long career working for Lockheed Martin as an information security analyst and investigator. She hunted hackers. 
She also had several radio shows, a cable TV show, and wrote plays and performed at local theaters. She is a published mystery writer, as well as author of several UFO books. As a journalist, Cheryl wrote the widely popular UFO column, New York Skies, for the SyracuseNewYorkTimes.com from 2013 to 2019. She was awarded Researcher of the Year in 2018. Our other guest, Linda Miller-Costa, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. When she was a teenager, the Chayahoga River caught fire. It made an environmentalist out of her. She moved to Washington, D.C. area and had environmental science librarian positions at the National Academy of Sciences, where she learned publishing, and Environmental Protection Agency, where she was head librarian for their toxicology library for 15 years. After moving to Syracuse, New York, to be closer to Cheryl's family, she owned a fabric store for five years and ended up returning to the library to work at a private Jesuit Catholic college library at Monier College. Linda is the leading author of UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2015. I want to welcome you both, Cheryl and Linda. What a diverse background. So curious, Cheryl. So you've gone from science to being a playwriter and doing mystery novels. Was, this is, I'm so curious, what got you into the UFO phenomenon? You want to tell us a little bit of this journey? Well, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, people have multifacets facets to their lives. And uh, my first encounter with UFOs was when I was 12 and I was with my parents. It was a August afternoon and uh, my mother had my father stop the car and pointed a a sphere parked out there in a clear blue sky, western sky. And we talked about it, and she said it could be the Air Force. And this is in 1965. And oh. so it could be the Air Force. It could be a weather balloon. Uh, NASA was only about five or six years old at that point. And then she said, you know, it might be people from another world. And, of course, that fascinated me as a 12-year-old. And then got me. And uh, you know how parents, uh, uh, teens look at parents, you know, mom and dad are stupid kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, mom uh, and I both started getting books at, at the library. And it was one of those few things, even to this day, we can, that's one of the only, one of the few things we can talk about civilly about things. Um, uh, it was a favorite subject with both of us. And um, that's where it went. Now, I kind of sat on my, I just read things all the time. Uh, I wasn't a fanatic. If it came across, you know, it came, we saw something in the newspaper, or we, uh, somebody had a book on their, on their coffee table. You know, I, I, I read it or took a look at it. Um, now, let's see, working at, I, uh, working at Lockheed Martin, I was with them 32 years, had a variety of jobs. Uh, I went to film school and I have a degree in entertainment writing. So uh, the deal so there is... That's quite a leap from very left brain work to very right brain work. Well, it was kind of a balance. Um, it was a balance. Uh, I worked with high-tech stuff every day. So the arts the arts was my, my escape 
in my uh, on my own time. Okay. Now I started not trying to be a uh, being a playwright um, uh, because I went to film school, and uh, I when I went to film school I made a, I made a bunch of in, independent films in school, and somebody took one of the bigger projects a VHS tape over to the theater department and in the university I was at the theater department and the film department didn't talk to each other. Hmm. And uh, it was a very strange thing. They were in two different colleges at the same uh, university. And uh, the professor who taught the the, the media perform, perform sorry, the performance media program over in the theater department said, I want to meet this person. And uh, he basically uh, quite literally dragged me into the media writing program over there in the theater department because you know, as he told me, a lot of my people, I'm, I'm lucky to get a couple of good treatments, maybe a script out of them by the end of the semester. He said, you went out and produced the darn movie. You know, I want you in my program, you know. So um, that that was how I got into playwriting. And I was always I've been in community theater since I was 15. So it's been 50, 55 years doing community theater. And I've got that most of my like place. natural fit. It was a good fit, yes. And I so I had my a lot of people used to joke about me because I my other forty hour a week job, as they used to say, was was community theater. I, I was working on other people's plays. I, I did technical for years. And then in the early nineties, I stopped doing technical and started uh, directing and producing at community theaters and uh, doing doing the business side of the of the plays. And, of course, because I was in that position, I was able to bend the right ears and in the summer one act festival get my play uh, get my plays produced. So it was a good mix. Um, the UFO side of this whole thing, I had to wait. I was in the military for almost 10 years between both services. And then later working for Lockheed Martin, I still had a high security clearance and they frowned on people being members of groups like MUFON, that type of thing. So I kept it pretty much to myself. And when I was retired in 2011, that freed me up. And then in 2012, uh, I was finishing uh, my arts and entertainment degree, or the writing degree. And the bottom line on, on that was... Uh, uh, one night, I, uh, I was working at a different newspaper than the one I ended up writing for. And uh, at late night, we'd get the press going and run the daily edition. And we had about a two-hour run. And it was uh, quite literally um, November 5th, 2012. I took a look at CNN.com. And there was a little sidebar story that said, UFOs have been declining since the 1980s. Maybe they were always just an urban legend, you know, and just that was being the bait. <laughs> that was the bait. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, being well read on the topic matter. I said, wait a minute, that sounds like misinformation. So for the first time in my life, I went out to the National UFO Reporting Center and I dug down into a couple of pages, got some year-end totals in the back and put them into a little spreadsheet and uh, plotted out a little bar graph. And the things went from uh, from left to right and they went up like a rocket and going, what memo didn't the UFOs get, you know? And uh, so that got me going. And I started writing a column for the Syracuse New Times um, uh, about six, some months later. And uh, it, during the course of writing the newspaper column, it was a weekly column. And that sounds like a great idea. Oh, wow, having a weekly column, that must be fun. Uh, the only way I can explain it to people is think of it in the context you got a, t a term paper to do every week. 
Uh, okay, and it, it, it only had to be somewhere between 300 to 1,000 words, but you had a term paper every week, and you had to have something interesting to write about, and you couldn't just always write about citing stories and things like this. So part of what I was doing started, I started adding up the numbers in New York State since that was my beat, and that's what led to developing this idea of of, of gathering numbers because we got good mail. We got very good feedback every time we presented numbers. That's pretty much how we got to be right now publishing two books in the last five years on UFO statistics. So this sounds very unique, and I'm curious to know, were there others across the states tracking the statistics, or were you like the first and only? Uh, yeah, I'm, we were the first ones to be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um that we knew of. I mean, you know, the MUFON chapters would add up whatever they what what they had going for a month, but nobody was doing. They always tended to do field investigations, and they they tended to only look at one event at a time. Ah, okay? so there wasn't and, an overarching view. No, there wasn't. And when they also the other thing they they tended to do was they might give you a list of oh hey they do a summary and say hey we had you know x number of sightings in new york state you know for for the month and that was it uh and we started digging into like the counties and things like this and the funny thing was would you believe that national ufo reporting center new fork and mufon um well new fork didn't doesn't collect County information from the person reporting a UFO. They take the city and state. And um, MUFON does collect it. But one of the things we found out working with the data was that uh, a lot of people don't either fill in, the, let's see, 3% don't fill in the, the city that they're reporting it from. And uh, some people don't spell the name of their city right. And that means very frequently they either get the county wrong or they don't put it in at all on the MUFON side. And we so, found out. There was information that was not being looked at by looking at the county information. And hold the thought for a moment. The idea was we reported a couple of articles and some of the old timer MUFON folks saw some of our reports doing it by county. And they said, wait a minute, we didn't know there was a cluster of UFOs in that county, you know, and that type of thing. And that got Linda and I talking. So I'm curious, you know, when you talk about them reporting how were they reporting? They were phoning it in. Why was it getting misspelled? Were there forms for them to fill out? Because I think probably back then it wasn't a, an online thing. So how did they report? Now, well, remember, we're working with 21st century data here. Okay. So both both the um, MUFON and New Fork added uh, online interfaces back uh, in the early 2000s, around 2004 or so. But prior to... Uh, the mid 80s, most people reported things by if there was a newspaper clipping, but most newspapers weren't reporting UFOs since 1968 after the doc, Dr. Condon did his report to Congress. The newspapers stopped reporting this stuff because they were told it was baloney, nothing to study here type of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so people, if they did report them, they sent clippings. Uh, sometimes you'd see some guy on the news say, hey, there's this guy in Ohio collecting stuff, you know, and and they might give out the guy's phone number. I remember in the 70s seeing some guy that was recording stuff and people would call his answering machine, leave, leave their sighting or something like that, or they'd fax it in. 
in the early 80s, people started coming online with America Online and CompuServe, and that gave people email capability. By the early 90s, we were all on dial-up uh, and uh, passing information to these services, but it was in the early 2000s when major amounts of broadband was available in, big, in, in major cities and their suburbs did the reporting function become uh, something much easier. And did it become more standardized so that you're getting now the city names and so on? Well, yes and no. Uh, it still relies on the individual to fill out the, the, the form correctly. You know, filling out a UFO reporting form has all the charm of filling out a uh, credit re- a credit re- uh, application. Oh, it, it's, so it's discouraging uh, for a lot of people. And do you think perhaps maybe people don't want to report it because they don't want to be seen as weird? Well, well, both both services said they respected uh, uh, respected confidentiality, mm-hmm. but there were any number of reasons. Uh, I'll give you an example: three percent, three and a half percent, four percent, something like that, uh, would leave the blank for the city. Now, either they didn't know where they were, maybe they were out in the middle of nowhere and they didn't know where they were, or in some cases, they people used to fill in. Uh, my mother told me not to tell you. The sheriff told me not to tell you. My husband told me not to tell you. You know, uh-huh. uh, I'm afraid to tell you. There's only 12 people living in our town, and if I report it, they'll know it's us. You know that uh-huh. uh, we used to see all kinds of narrative like that, but um, it was—it's a really tiny percentage. But there was an issue there. So the bottom line is, people—the broadband made a big difference for everybody to be able to report the stuff. Whether or not they filled out the forms very well—that's another issue. Uh-huh. Uh, some people will fill out a form for give you a really good report, but they won't they won't give you any personal information and tell you how to call them or anything like that. Okay, so that makes it more clear. I'd like to uh, bring Linda in on the conversation. So, Linda, I'm understanding that you went through actually a fire at Cuyahoga River. Is that did I say Cuyahoga? Cuyahoga River. Yeah, and. Uh, so you want to share a little bit about your transition from going into environmental work to UFOs, how that came about? Well, actually, it's related. Um, very famous, 1969, the, uh, Cleveland was a steel town, and the steel mills would dump all their um, pollutants into the Cuyahoga River. And in June of 1969, it caught fire. It had so many poisons and toxins in it. And uh, I was appalled. And uh, uh, when I, I got a degree in psychology, Case Western Reserve University, and then I moved to the big city, moved to the Washington, D.C. area. And eventually, uh, one of my first major parts of my career was at the uh, National Academy of Sciences. And I was working on various studies in the environmental science division. And you have to remember that back in the 1980s, environmental studies was a brand new field. Um, it was, uh, in fact, there was no such thing as an environmental studies degree. You had a chemistry degree or a psychology degree or a French degree. Uh, you know, it's just they just took intelligent, curious people that knew how to do research um, and, and they did the work. Uh, and actually, there's a lot of parallels to UFO um, studies, too, that I can talk to later. So but, you were uh, a pioneer. Well, yeah, yeah, I was. And uh, it was very exciting. And uh, uh, just as a side, you know, back in the 80s, they were talking about, you know, global climate change and how we had 40 years to do something about it and we needed to get going. And here it is 40 years later and we haven't done what they've done. And therefore, you know, 
like you people out on the West Coast are, are dying of high heat. Uh, but anyway, one of the points of it was that I w- we were doing a study on environmental epidemiology. And epidemiology is the science of looking at the statistics and prevalence of a particular um, like disease, usually, or illness. And um, uh, the they had the novel idea of using it to environmental study. So the idea is instead, you know, instead of saying, okay, we know there's pollution here and it's making people sick, we would look at where people were getting sick and say, well, maybe there's something here toxic that's causing them to get ill. And the most famous one of this, of course, is Love Canal in New York, uh, where uh, a lot of kids were getting leukemia, et cetera. And they grew, why are these kids getting leukemia? And they found out that the, the town was built on top of a toxic waste area. Um, and so the same thing can be applied to uh, ufology in that, uh, you know, maybe instead of just trying to find, you know, uh, stories about people have seen things, et cetera, is just use a, uh, a scientific research uh, data analysis uh, approach of <coughs> looking at um, where the things are cited and then maybe being able to interpretate from that uh, uh, where uh, where the concentrations are and what what might be driving them, that sort of thing. And so when Cheryl started doing her her column, doing adding statistics to it, um, <coughs> we had a scientist friend that was interested in it. And, one, as a research librarian, I'm always interested in how do you find information? How do you help people find information about these things? I thought, well, you know, you did this study for like New York State. Just, you know, this could be applied to the whole country. And of course, I didn't realize what I was saying at the time because <laughs> it <right>. led to <laughs> multi-year effort to get all of this done. Uh, you know, a cute story that goes with that was um, it was in late uh, fall of 2015. We'd already had a, uh, a retired uh, physics slant uh, uh, astronomy professor uh, Dr. Gordon Spear encouraged us to dive deeper and to do more more uh, county study, so to speak. Particularly uh, since New York was my beat, he wanted to know something about certain counties in the Hudson Valley. But the bottom line was between what he had said to us and what these old time uh, uh, MUFON directors in New York State had said to us was that uh, there were there were clusters we identified that nobody knew about because we mm-hmm. simply added county data to the sighting information, a, a mass of it, okay? Right. And uh, so we were in our favorite pub one night staring across a couple of pints, and uh, we said, you know, wow, look at all the cool stuff we found, you know? And then the question came up, what would happen if we did the whole country, you know? And we, I mm-hmm. think we stared at each other for another 10 minutes because we realized it was probably going to take a year. Uh, it took 18 months. To do that first book because we really didn't know what we were doing and there was a lot of there was a lot of work with cleaning up the data to make it usable and well, we did be- things we knew how to do we, we didn't yeah. things we did then that took us a month to do or a month and a half to do mm-hmm. i can do in a day or two now yeah. you know it seems like such a natural fit for Linda to jump into doing a desk reference as a librarian. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's such a natural step, Linda. And, well, that, uh, that's one of the things I learned as, as a uh, librarian is that I, I get these uh, 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 new librarians, you know, fresh in their career right out of library school. And uh, this was, you know, when the internet was coming, actually before the internet, but we had access to databases online, et cetera, and uh, uh, some internet. And, uh, uh, you know, 
I, I, I would show them how, you know, they would get a question and they'd start getting on the computer trying to find the answer. And I would turn around and pull out a book and say, here it is. So, you know, so the Voila. secret, yeah, because sometimes things are better in books or are more easily found, you know, um, we all use phone books a lot. They were very handy things to have. And how many times now in your life you said, I just wish I had a phone book, you know, yes. uh, instead yeah. I have to find things online. But uh, I'd like to just mention how I got into UFOs um, when yes, I was. Gr- that's what I want to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was growing up in Cleveland, I had a um, when I was in high school, I had a girlfriend who had a twin brother. And uh, uh, he saw a UFO come off of Lake Erie, and he was just right out of the Navy. And so he knew that that was not an airplane because he was, you know, trained in identifying aircraft, et cetera. And uh, uh, the Air Force took him aside and talked to him. And by the end of it, he was told he was not supposed to discuss this with anyone. This was back in the, the late 1960s. Um, they were deliberately hush-hushing it. Yeah, he was deliberately told not to talk about it anymore. And when I was in uh, in D.C., they had an organization called the International Fordian Organization uh, based on uh, Charles Ford, who was a scientist who wrote a book of the damned or uncomfortable scientific information that people like try to, you know, pretend never happens, like when it rains frogs and that kind of thing. And so they would have this, was, of course, pre-web. And so if you wanted to learn about things, you had to get together at conferences and bring in speakers. And, and uh, that was the way that you found information. And they they would uh, one of the things they some of it was talking about the pyramids or you know uh, uh, but some of it was also they brought in uh, UFO researchers and in fact I got to see John Mack and mm-hmm. and Bud Hopkins and a bunch of famous people and so I got interested in it that way so uh, when Cheryl started getting more into it I already had a background in it. Uh, well, it must one, have been really electric to be going to these conferences and meeting these. For these other pioneers, you know, who are willing. Well, to I did time. I didn't really realize they were pioneers. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, when you're in the middle of something and it's new, you don't, you know, think, right. oh, wow, I got to be, you know. Uh, I, I remember being at a conference with Richard in San Francisco with Jacques Vallée. And that was like mm-hmm. memorable, very yeah. memorable, called Angels, Angels and Aliens. Uh, but one of the things, too, that has been throughout my career and through UFOs is that as a librarian, when I got my diploma, they said, you know, one of your your professional ethics and responsibilities as a librarian is you fight censorship always. You know, well, uh, we need you now in social media. <laughs> well, exactly. So that's one of the things that's, that's been going on. That re- I read uh, Richard Dolan's book after Disclosure, and uh, that really, you know, the the censorship that was going on, and, and you know, the fact that they would ruin people's lives and careers, et cetera. And uh, and you know, we got a little bit paranoid during our writing of our book because occasionally there would be you know like strange cars out front sitting for hours. And it's like you know, all right, whatever, you know. Um, I mean, even I even told some of the priests at the school, you know, if I disappeared, you know, he, he oh disappeared he what's going on. Uh, but yeah, the censorship is really outrageous. It's still going on, obviously. And, um, uh, you know, I think that that's one of my real interests in in the field is that is that we need to not only look at what the UFOs are, but how the UFOsology is a growing field like environmentalism and uh, 
you know, right now there are no people with UFO degrees. You know, anybody says, well, what's your expertise? Well, I, you know, you have a degree in UFO studies. Does you tell me where they're offering one and I'll go sign up for it. You right, know? exactly. Yeah, so so uh, this is really fascinating. We're coming up at the bottom of the hour. And when we return, I'd love to hear more in depth of what exactly is the work that you're doing. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. The show tonight is called 75 Years of Seeing Flying Saucers. What, if anything, have we learned? And our guests are Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa. And we will return after the break. It's funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So look, you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict, you can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors. 
and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Aneta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. This is Kinthea and Keith Morgan standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, who really, really wanted to be here, and his his monitor died. So we stepped in. I'm not Richard. I, can, I can't pretend to be Richard. But we have wonderful guests, and we're going to continue exploring this topic. And Keith is uh, very knowledgeable around... Uh, UFOs, UAPs, so I, I think this will be a lively show. So our guests tonight, Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller-Costa, and we've just been delving into what got them into the UFO world, so to speak, and I'm really wanting to understand just exactly what is it you're doing when you, you mentioned, Cheryl, earlier about statistics, and if you would give me a sense of what exactly is what you produce well okay there's two approaches to this um we're doing something called observational science uh it's not like we can set up an experiment and measure something that way we have to do it by observational measurements and uh so uh what we what started to do uh this is back in 2015 uh we started to measure the phenomena Okay, and up until now, nobody done that. Uh, it was always about case studies and one particular event and uh, measuring just what went on with that event. Uh, and uh, nobody actually sat down and started looking at the bigger dynamics of the overall phenomena. And uh, Linda came to the idea of uh, why don't we do, and this is a loose sense, a census of UFO sightings and get brilliant. the bigger the, the bigger numbers. Yes, it was brilliant. And uh, she she pressed that issue. Um, so we kind of agreed to trying to do this uh, in on that October night in that uh, pub. And we started uh, refining how to clean up the data and things like this and made plans to download the data fresh on New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's morning uh, in 2016 and start working on the material. And that's how it got started. Now, we've looked at, you know, the early the first book really uh, looked at things like uh, um, how many of them in their locations and states and uh, and to some degree major cities and major counties, that type of thing, gathering that kind of scale of information. We measured it by month, that type of thing. And uh, that was the early, those were the early measurements. And from that, we started learning things like, uh, how to say this, uh, uh, that, you know, like everybody used to knee jerk, you know, you mentioned you, uh, looking at UFOs and an amount that might be in a state and everybody knee jerks and says, oh, no, it's because of the population, you know. And yes, there are a lot of UFO sightings in major metropolitan areas or large population areas. But we we discovered that that was not the only driver. 
And with the whole, by the time we got five years later and coming up with the new book, the, the, the 2001 to 2020 book, uh, we discovered that there were five drivers and five influencers to UFO sighting reports. So before you go into those five items, uh, you sent me some images that were have to do with UFO sightings in New Mexico because that's where Richard lives. And is that an example of what you're talking about, how you were gathering the statistics? And Well, actually, that, that, that graphic um, is something literally we learned how to do the last couple of weeks. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's relatively new to, a method of displaying the information. Um, but what, ultimately, one of the things we wanted to be able to do uh, in our first book, the 2017 book, we were able to break things down. United States down to a state and down to the county level, okay? And uh, in the last five years, the thing we really wanted to be able to do is get down to the uh, local level. Now, doing it with cities was our goal, but we found that doing it by zip code or doing it by county were the two best ways to do it for the time being. And, and was this something that, like, Linda was very, like, astute in how to organize this material? Well, Linda was very, has had a, I, I'm going to say a, a, I don't like the term guiding hand. Um, she gave very firm direction how we approached the data. I supervised. <laughs> she, she literally supervised. Uh, and she gave me direction because there, was, there, there were questions that I had about how, how to organize the information. Uh, I was a good analyst, but uh, librarians are information managers and they know how to organize it. So I was constantly taking guidance from her and how we approach this. Uh, the first, like I said, the first book we focused on, uh, shapes to some degree states and counties, uh, on another level. And those were the things we measured at that time. Now over the, the intervening time from 2017, when we released that first book and, end of uh, in 2020 when we were all locked down uh and we were planning to do the second book uh we we gave ourselves uh, the benchmark of coming up with a different set of measurements and we have things like measurement by the hour of the sighting okay things like that and um that told us a lot that told us a huge amount plus uh, there was another colleague here in new york state that gave us additional information. He was using our data and he was researching a different leg of it than we were. And uh, so there's been a lot of interest in the fact that we're revealing, you know, a lot of people said to us, why, why aren't you doing field studies? I said, our answer back was, we don't want to study a single ant. We are looking at the anthill. Well, in terms of the anthill, I'm curious, like what, hours where most of the sightings happening and what areas like where would you have your highest possibility of seeing a ufo okay now that see that's the thing um it, okay you want people want to know where the where the hot spot where, where's the most ufos and okay. and the time of day which well don't go there yet don't go okay. there yet um the time of day is actually pretty standard across the country amazingly enough um, uh, th that's a phenomenon nobody knew occurred, but the, the idea of the most sightings, um, well, actually, do you want to do it by state? Do you want to do it by county? 
makes you a difference. You tell me. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, uh, California is the number one state in the country. Of course, everybody, uh, like I said before, knee jerks and said, well, it's population, but there's more to it than that. Um, the number two state is Florida. The number three state is uh, Texas. Okay. And that's been pretty solid for like the last uh, six or seven years. The, um, the top 10 reads off something like this. California is number one. Florida is number two. Texas is number three. Uh, currently, Washington State is the number four state in the country. New York State is number five. Pennsylvania is number six. Arizona is in a funny position. It has been consistently number seven for the past seven years. It's it's weird. I would have thought it was higher in that list. Oh, well, it is in a way. Uh, while Arizona, it's the state is number seven. Maricopa County, where Phoenix is, is the number two county in the country of over uh, of like 3,200 counties. Oh, okay. so the county reference can actually be different than the state reference. Oh, in drastically. Uh, we got we got a hate. We got a lot of hate mail when the, the first book came out from people in Nevada, because Nevada only ranked about number 26 or something like that at the time in the first book. In oh, fact, yeah. Her- with their Area 51, they must have been really ticked off. Yeah, no, well, the second book uh, that we just released in May, uh, they're number 24. But um, that, that everybody got upset with us about it. And we started talking to people and I said, well, do you report them? No, we see them all the time. I said, do you report them? Well, no, because we see them all the time. And and so the, the, the mindset we had to take is that if you don't report them, we can't count them. You know, right. this is a so big, has there is been a, a campaign deal. to get them to record them? Well, we, we've we've said it enough. And George Knapp out in uh, Las Vegas, uh, KLAS, he's been very good about making sure he put the word out there. But the bottom line is uh, county, you know, what what might be a hot, give me an example. Los Angeles County is the number one county in the country. It's got more sightings than 39 individual states. Maricopa That's County, amazing. Maricopa it's, County, Arizona, essentially Phoenix, um, is the number two county, and they have more sightings than 36 individual states. Okay. And well, I guess the, counties really is the best way to look at it if you want to find the hot spot. Well, yeah. And, and you know, if you want to look at the number one city uh, currently, that happens to be Phoenix, you know, Phoenix, Arizona. Even though the state is number seven. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'll, g- I'll give you the top 10 on cities right now. Phoenix, New York City, Las Vegas is number three. Okay. Los Angeles City is number four. Seattle, Washington is number five. Portland, Oregon is number six. Chicago is number seven. Tucson, Arizona is number eight. Um, San, uh, uh, San Diego is number 10. The, the number nine slot was filled by an unspecified. Remember I told you some people don't fill out, you know, uh, what their city is. And that's driven by, we had to put a category in our database for every single state, uh, unknown County, all 50 states got, were assigned unknown, the term unknown County with their counties. And then the, anything that was unspecified where there was no reference to a city, we, we dropped them in this catch all, uh, bucket of the unknown County. So and so nationally, uh, the unknown county, uh, unknown uh, city comes in uh, number nine. 
in the country. Uh, San Diego is number 10. Houston's number 11. Denver's number 12. Albuquerque's, okay, uh, New Mexico, okay. Uh, Albuquerque's number 13. Orlando Ford is, 19, four, uh, four, is 14. You get the idea. And in the okay. book, in the book, we publish, um, like I said, we had 3,200 counties um, uh, in the United States are county-like entities. Some cities are the equivalent to a county. And so uh, we had 3,078 counties reporting. Wow. And, and we That's had vast. Yeah, for over the 20 over the 20 years of the study uh-huh. and uh-huh. Uh, 20, uh, 20 uh, it's the change I don't know it's like 20 uh, 20.4 uh, 20 I'm sorry I'm gonna say it wrong 20. Thousand cities or municipalities reported UFO sightings. Wow! Um, now I'll give you one more statistic because we're doing zip, measuring zip code information. Okay, there are forty-one thousand six hundred zip codes in the country. Okay, eighteen thousand four hundred of them reported UFOs. That's unbelievable, and I had no idea there were that many zip codes. It just blew me away. <laughs> One thing I wanted to point out is that I know that the the shows like the last seventy five years of, of UFOs and you know one of the thing people question well why don't you go back to like nineteen forty and it's like yeah that would be nice but we don't have the information to count you know that there just wasn't the the reporting or the gathering of the information and uh, it in the uh, the new book, I think you did. He, she made an attempt to try to to show something, you know, for for uh, uh, the historic trends. But it really comes down to is that you know this is 2021, and you know what happened in 1947 at Roswell is all very interesting. But it's long ago, and we need to focus on what's going on now. You know, a lot of people. And, and wasn't there even some some report of ghost ships back in the cowboy days? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, We're always surprised. Haven't people watched Ancient Aliens? You know, I mean, all these these types of things are discussed on that show. People really should check it out if they're interested. Now, something a lot of people say to me when they hear Los Angeles County is the number one county, and they say, they're they're thinking the city when they say this. Well, well, wait a minute. They got all that light pollution out there. But if you go up into the hills, you're above the city lights, and it changes the dynamic of what you can see. The other thing that's interesting is Los Angeles City, Los Angeles County, um, they've had UFO sightings out there since the 1880s, strange lights flying up and down those canyons long before we had human power, uh, human flight, you know. So um, it, the phenomena is not what people think it is. Okay. Right, it, and do you think a lot more it to kind it. of sort of seems to suggest there there may be a base there if they're going in and out of those canyons? Well, one course. of the things is that is that uh, there seems to be a trend of sightings. And remember, sightings are not necessarily the count of how many UFOs there are; it's just how many people have seen them. You know, and so I mean, you can have you know ten thousand people see the same UFO, so that's one UFO, but it's ten thousand sightings. Uh, okay. But there. There is a trend of uh, they're clustered around water, and so there's a lot of suspicion that there's underground water uh, bases off in the Pacific, 
and um, uh, around the Great Lakes, there's a lot of sightings, uh, Hudson River, um, the East Coast. Uh, so there seems to be a, uh, I mean, you've got to think there's a lot of ocean that'd be a good, really good place to hide. You know, people say, used to say, uh, people say to me, well, how come Florida's got more sightings than Texas? Texas has twice the population. Okay. But they have 400 miles worth of coastline and Florida has 12,000 miles of coastline. Okay. Well, so oh, that's, I'm, so, I'm up sorry, a really 1200. I mean, point then about the, the, the water aspect of it that I don't think many people think about. I'm, Curious, like you brought up that, so 10,000 people are seeing one sighting. So as you were putting all together these statistics, then you also had to figure out, well, were they seeing the same no, craft? We didn't, we didn't go there. We didn't, okay. we didn't make that judgment call. So you but, just but you, counted we do it as the, reports? I mean, like if there were 10,000 people, was it counted as the, the 10,000 reports the counted as 10,000 UFOs, or how do you no, do that? No, no, no. We just took raw data. First thing, in fact, people ask me, well, what did the sighting information say? We kept city, state, date, time, shape. We got rid of the narrative. You know, there's always a write-up with the, with the, with the sighting. We didn't care about the write-up. We only cared about, cared about raw data. Um, so, yeah, there might be some... Uh, duplication of things where where there's a sighting and a lot of people see it. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. There was um, in 2008, April 16, 2008, um, the normal the normal amount of sightings nationally on a day to day basis is about 23 per day. Okay, average. Every now and then there's a spike. Okay, and in 2008 there was a spike on April 16th. There were 60 in the United States uh, instead of 23. Um, and uh, I dug down. I, I did a, a report for that day alone. I can break the data out like this. And most of the states it was onesies, twosies. Okay, for that day, but um, Indiana had 25. This is a state that averages maybe two a week. Okay. So, and, but was that 25, 25 different incidents or 25 reports? Well, uh, well, as we dug down into it, we found out that those 25 were split between 12 municipalities in two neighboring counties. So there was a low, it was a local flap, so to speak. I'm going to think of it as like the Phoenix lights, you know, a lot of people in, in, in Phoenix saw those. Right, you know, but they all saw the same thing. But there were also a lot of people. I'm just saying, when you look at the, the data, that anytime you know, there's 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 a well-known phrase: lies, damn lies, and statistics. And you know, I'm at the we live in the the age of big data. I mean, this is what we're complaining about: the tech companies and everything. That you know, every time you Google something, somebody is taking that statistic and using it to sell advertising. You know, whatever. Well, it's the same thing with UFO data: is that it can be sliced and diced lots of different ways, and it just it really depends on how you manipulate it. And right now, all we can manipulate is the sightings because. You know what? The government's not collecting this information, or if they are, they're not telling us that. So we're working they're not with sharing. what we've got. Yeah, you know, that's the point. In fact, Linda made, a, I'm going to call it a rant uh, in the preface for the uh, the new book. Uh, we refer to it as the pink book. That's the 
2001 to 2020 book, uh, she she went on a little rant. And one of the sentences she used is, here we are five years later from the first book and we're still doing the government's job. And she made yeah. a good point. Why yeah. isn't why aren't why aren't why isn't the, gov- the the force and the resources of the United States government being used with the first book? Um, Rich Hoffman, he's a very well-known investigator uh, out of Alabama, and he made the point. He worked. Uh, he he's a uh, he works for the Army, and he made a point. He says to do what Sharon Linda did, I would need a staff of about fifteen to twenty people, well-funded. Okay, and Linda made a good point with the new book was this here we are doing this again with a uh, with a a one researcher living on pension and and uh, and Social Security and the librarian being underpaid. You know, I mean, you know, we've done stuff that you shouldn't be able to do with the budget we've got. Yes, it makes me wonder if they're really not tracking it, not sharing or. They're not tracking it because they don't want us to know. So why should they put any energy to knowing? I Well, my theory, like, you know, this recent UFO report that came out that everybody's talking about. And, you know, I mean, the the, the government and and people made such an effort to repress this information back in the 60s and the 70s. And when you think of, of... you know, and this is my psychology background coming in. When you when you look at the people involved, at this point, the people working in the Pentagon are several generations away from the people who made those decisions. And so it's like first they repress the study of it, and then they forget that they're the ones who repressed it. And so you've got the people working there now and says, Oh, well, UFOs, that's all a joke. Well, yeah, that's because the government used the ridicule as a mechanism to repress people's interest in this because they didn't want to share it. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very, anytime you, any, I mean, human beings are very complex. That's probably why the aliens are studying us, you know, if that's what they're doing. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, I, I, we were that the report. It's like I wasn't expecting much of it because it's like I think that the people working there right now really have there's no institutional memory anymore. Thank it's, you. It's gone. So you think it's more by default and not deliberate? Well, yeah. Incompetence. You Incompetence. Know? Incompetence. Uh, <laughs> in 1968, Dr. Condon's report to Congress told there was nothing to be gained by studying UFOs. That they're not a threat. That they were not a threat. There was nothing being gained. So money, there was no money being allotted. Congress did not allocate money for somebody to study it for in any of the agencies in the government. Now, we're not talking the Air Force. We're talking other research agencies in the government, academia, applying for grants to study it. None of that happened. And to be honest with you, when they were people were telling me, oh, what are they going to reveal? I said, you know. I'm of the belief, having worked with the government, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. We're both former government contractors, okay? (laughs) And so the bottom line is, uh, I I told a lot of people on radio shows right up until that report, I said, I think the government knows less about it than we think they do. So uh, I I don't know. I almost, I kind of tend to think that it's more deliberate rather than incompetence. I think they do know, but they just don't want us to know. I think they they probably know some, but I don't think the organization and organized study of it is there, except in very small pockets. I mean, look at, okay, the the uh, uh, X-Files, you know, it's classic. It's like, you show your interest in UFOs and the government, you get an office in the basement. 
you know, and you got to remember DC is, is a culture. It's a, it, it attracts intelligent, ambitious people from all over the country. Go to DC because there the currency is power. Well, you don't get power by advocating things that people are going to laugh at you for. And that's the same in, in government as anywhere else. And in, for that matter, in government, you know, there's there's the, the federal appointees, and then there's the federal bureaucrats, and then there's the contractors. You know who does a lot of the actual work? It's the contractors. The federal right. bureaucracy has meetings, and the, the, the federal appointees, uh, you know, d- deal with the press and the public relations. So uh, that's like I also had a, a rant about this whole UAP thing, you know. Well, that's another classic Washington strategy. It's like, well, let's change the acronym for it, because that way it looks like we're doing something oh like well we, we're we're mike and more modern we're paying attention instead of calling it ufos we're gonna call it uaps and, and so, they didn't want the band yeah that's, yeah, that's how fly, seriously really? we do it do, i do you think that's gonna fly uap do you think no. that's gonna stick i i think it's laughable i think it's pretentious well i it was well the other thing was they were trying to get away from the the stigma um uh, one of the things that goes on with this whole uh like when the pilots out there in the Nimitz and things like this. This has been going on for about 20 years. They've been actively seeing these things. Of course, the pilots were told not to report these things, okay? And when they started reporting them, the goofy thing was is the there's a there's a whole bunch of little compartments of defense intelligence agencies, okay, that do research on things. That any of those things that looked like a Russian uh, Russian aircraft or had a Russian insignia or a Chinese, they would have been all over it. But because it was something anomalous, all these all these research agencies avoided it. There was a stigma, like everybody else. Oh, we don't want to touch it. We don't want to report it. Somebody would call us crazy. Well, the the, the intelligence agencies felt that way as well, and they didn't want to touch it. So what we ended up doing was Navy intelligence finally stepped up to it since the Air Force wasn't doing it. Navy intelligence stepped up to it. And, of course, they formed this UAP task force type of thing. And um, the funny, goofy thing is, what were they whining about in that report? 140 sightings that they've had in 20 years. I got 167,632, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, when is somebody going to talk to us, you know? So the bottom line is, is that I think they were troubled by the same stigma. And I know you're going to break, so we're going to let you go. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guests tonight are Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa. And this is Kinthea with Keith Morgan standing in for Richard C. Hoagland. And we will return after the break. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. 
We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.